Thank you, Rob. Thank you. I hope you can bear with me today. That's not a smoker's cough. That's a Willamette Valley in allergy season. So I don't know what happened unless I just was screaming in night terrors or something last night when I went to sleep. But uh, my voice is, is a little bit shot, but that's okay. Um, just just bear with me as I try to do this. It's a, it's a privilege to come and join you in worship today. And uh, I, I'm particularly thankful for this church and your ministry to Brian and this time that you've given him off. I think it's important. I work with the Northwest Baptist Convention. And I think I told you last time, basically, I'm a glorified cheerleader. Like, all we do at the convention, our only purpose is to serve the local church. Um, and it's not my job to know how to engage Eugene. That's why God's placed you here. But we want to encourage you and do that. We want to serve you as you do that. And one of the ways we do that is by encouraging and serving your pastors. And and uh, I, I'm seeing pastors all over the state, especially coming out of COVID, really fatigued, worn out, discouraged. Um, but beyond that, the culture has shifted. And so to allow your pastors some time off, not just to rest or recharge, but also revision and, and kind of re-strategize um, because the world we live in now is vastly different from the world that we lived in three years ago, four years ago. And, and I'm seeing pastors need time off to, to consider what's working, seek God for new vision. And I'm thankful that we have someone like Brian here that's doing that. Um, and so it's, it's good that I can come and fill the pulpit in his absence today. Now, this morning, <clears throat> we're going to be going through several passages of Scripture. But in Matthew chapter 16, there's a very interesting maybe a conversation that Jesus has with his disciples concerning his identity. And at the end of this conversation, Jesus makes a very interesting statement. He says, or, or Matthew 16, 13 says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? And they replied, some said, you say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh or blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Now, there's a good bit of debate throughout church history over whether the rock on which Christ will build his church is Peter himself or in that confession that Peter makes that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, it's the historical claim of the Catholic church that Peter himself is the rock upon which the church will be built. That's the claim that Peter is the first pope, right? Now, I hold to a different interpretation, and because you're Southern Baptist, I assume you do as well. And it's the interpretation that the rock that Jesus is referring to was not on Peter the man, but on that confession of faith. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that understanding leads us to the truth that is faith in Jesus Christ that is the foundational hallmark of all believers. And those that have placed their faith in Christ, as Peter did, are then the church. 
And in this passage, we find the disciples, they are fully convinced as to who Jesus is. And then based on that reality, Jesus assures them the gates of hell are not going to prevail against you. Now, the last I checked, gates are a defensive weapon, not an offensive weapon, right? And so the implication is that based on who Jesus is, the church is going to go on the offensive and take ground that's been occupied by the enemy. <clears throat> and now here we are today, no less convinced as to who Jesus is. And we are now given the sacred task of making that truth of his identity known to the world. And I want to remind you this morning that the promises of Jesus are just as certain for us today as it was for them. But that said, it can still be a bit of a grind, can it? That doesn't mean that it's going to be easy. The last three years have been some of the most difficult of my life in ministry. I think I shared some of that with you um, when I was here before. But it's, it's, it's a long story, but the short version is my, my wife was diagnosed with this rare, deadly disease, and around the same time, my son lost one of his best friends who died tragically right in front of him. And between my wife's disease, her treatments, the loss of our son's friend, and, and then the Lord, he chose, he miraculously healed my wife, and Baptists don't talk about that, but one night she's sick and dying, the next minute there's nothing to treat, there's no other word, that's the doctor's word for it, and we go through all of that, and then we roll right into COVID, right? And that was hard for a completely different reason. And I mean, I was just pastoring down here in Crestwell at New Hope at the time. And if I were honest with you, I would have to admit that the challenges that we faced during COVID were harder than anything I thought we'd face in ministry. It's not like they got pandemic class in seminary and how to lead through that stuff. But how do you shepherd a flock that's been scattered? How do you walk that line between faithfulness and foolishness, Right. How do you honor the governing authorities that God has placed over your life without compromising your duty to God? Protect the sheep and feed the sheep at the same time. Y'all had to deal with that too. I mean, Cresswell, I mean, that's a little bit different environment than even up here in Eugene. I know it was even more difficult, some of those issues that you had to deal with up here. I'm sure that there have been a lot of times over the last several years where they sure don't feel like we're storming the gates of hell, right? <laughs> and yet we've been told we'll prevail. And so again, this morning, I want to encourage you and remind you that despite the difficulties that we faced, there are certain realities that we can count on. We have certain truths that are true regardless of circumstances. And ultimately, the church, we really have one job. Make disciples. That's it. The last thing Jesus says before he ascends into heaven, y'all go make disciples. And they said, okay, and they did. That hasn't changed. And we're promised if we do that job, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. And not like I said, we're going we're gonna to look at several passages, but this morning I want to look at the church, its mission, its calling, um, and, and really how the, the promises that Jesus made to those disciples, the gates of hell will not prevail, are still true to us today and the implications of what that means. Now, to look at the life of the church, I want to start in Acts chapter 1. That is the beginning of the story of the church. It's the story of how the church started. And then we're also reminded because Jesus is still alive, he's still active, and he's still empowering the church today, we are assured that the story of Jesus continues through us even now. 
So look at Acts chapter 1. This is how it all began. Beginning in verse 1, Luke writes, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up into heaven, after having given instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion... While he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father has promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then they gathered around him and they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the days the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, we all know the key verse really of the book of Acts is right there in verse 8. Not only is this the key verse of the book of Acts, just as a study tip for you, this is the outline of the book of Acts. Um, all right here in one verse, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And the book of Acts is the story of how the church was born in Jerusalem and went from Jerusalem to Samaria, Judea, and then out to the ends of the earth. But that verse, that remains our marching orders. You'll be my witnesses. You will make disciples testify as to what you have seen about who I am. But this morning, I want to key on something else. I'm not minimizing the great commission that we see in verse 8, but there's a very interesting, fascinating subtext within the immediate context of this passage. And once you begin to see this, you can't unsee it. It's everywhere in Scripture. And it's back in verse 6. It says, They gathered around him and they asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And I want you to think about this and what's going on in their mind. These disciples, they're worried, they're afraid, they're uncertain. Imagine what they've been through in the last 40, 50 days, right? They have marched into Jerusalem as the crowds are praising Jesus, right? Laying the palm branches in front of them as he rides in. And they are convinced we are entering Jerusalem with the Messiah, the Holy One of Israel, like they know this only to see one of their own betray him. Actually, they all betrayed him in different ways. Watch him brutally murdered, executed on a cross, publicly humiliated, buried in a borrowed tomb. I say borrowed because he's only using it for the weekend. But then, (laughs) right? And then he appears, resurrected the Lord of life, And he spends 40 days with them, convincing them as to who he is. And they understand. And Jesus says, hey, y'all, I'm getting ready to go. And their question is, "Uh, Lord, when are you coming back? That's a fair question. Can we at least acknowledge that that's a fair question? As I look at the condition of the world around us today, I ask the same thing. Lord, when are you coming back? I look at the problems we're facing, the brokenness that exists in the world today. I see no solution. I certainly see no political solutions. I see the failure of the best that our knowledge and our education can get us. We're only spiraling deeper and deeper into our rebellion. Lord, when are you coming back? It's a fair question, and it's one that they ask. But that response is not for you to know. 
It's not for you to know the dates or the times the Father is set by His authority. Now, it's interesting to me, and we miss this in our culture today, but they would have immediately picked up on this, that the language in the conversation that immediately precede the Great Commission, this is cultural imagery of a wedding. Now, it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus is using wedding terminology as the foundation of the church is being set. I mean, Scripture on a number of occasions refers to the church as what? The bride of Christ. And there's a beauty in this that I want us to catch. Now, according to the wedding custom of that day, when it was time for a young man to get married, he and his father would approach a woman and her father to arrange a marriage. And once the terms had been agreed upon by the fathers in this discussion, what would happen is the son would then take a cup of wine and he would pour out a cup of wine and he would present that cup of wine to the young woman. And in extending that cup to her, he is in essence saying, this wine represents my blood, my very life, and I am pledging my life to you. And the young woman in that moment would have had the choice to decline the drink, thus rejecting this young man's pledge. Or she would receive the cup and drink from it, essentially saying, I accept the offer of your life, and I offer mine in return. Now, when you think about that, the imagery runs really deep at the table of the Lord when Jesus offers that cup to his disciples, does it not? Again, we miss that in our culture today, but that's wedding imagery. Jesus, and at that last supper, is clarifying the terms by which he's going to purchase his bride. This is my blood. This is the bride price that has been agreed upon by my father. And so what would happen is once the bride accepted the terms of that arrangement, they would have been considered legally betrothed. And although they had not yet come together as husband and wife, it would have taken a legal divorce at that moment to nullify that covenant agreement. That, by the way, that's, for example, that's the relationship status of Joseph and Mary in that betrothal period that you read about with the birth of Christ. There had been arrangements and pledges that had been made, but the marriage had not yet been consummated. That's why the Bible says that Joseph undertook it in his mind. He would divorce her quietly. This was much more than an engagement. And so what would have happened then, newly betrothed, the young man would then return to his father's house and he would begin to build a home onto his father's house for his bride-to-be. Now, this is one of those things, one of those old-timey songs like, I've got a mansion just over the hillside. No, you don't. We, we read that wrong in our culture today. The, the, the concept of I got my very own house out away from anyone else up on top of a hill, that's not what they would have understood in that day and time. What would have happened is the young man would have gone to his father's home and he would begin to build on a place for his bride. And, and, and here's the thing. The groom never knew how long it was going to take. In fact, it wasn't up to the groom to decide. It was only when the father said the home has been properly prepared that the man would go and claim his bride. Jesus alludes to this in Matthew 24, 36. He says, about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven or the son, but only the father. And so when Jesus then tells his disciples, no man knows the appointed time, only the father, this is in the context of wedding imagery. Now, it's also into the same cultural context we read in John 14, right? Don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And here it is. My father's house has many rooms. 
If it were not so, would have I told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you may be where I am. This whole time, Jesus has been teaching his disciples that he is going to return for them. And until that time, no matter how difficult it may be, they have a job to do, right? So it stands to reason that his final words to them would be a reminder of this very truth. It's not for you to know when I'm coming back. Only the Father determines that. But you have a job to do until I return. Be my witnesses. Share the gospel. Make disciples. And do it in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. But don't worry. You're going to be fine because I'll give you the power to complete the task. The promised Holy Spirit. If there was any doubt that we, the church, in Christ would be victorious, we should rest assured that the same power that raised Jesus from the grave has seated him at the right hand of the Father in the throne room of heaven, placing all things under his feet. Well, that is the same power that we're promised in Acts 1.8. But I want you to notice and think about what Jesus is commanding them to do there and why I believe it's in the context of wedding imagery. <clears throat> I think Jesus is telling them the terms of the marriage have been agreed upon. The dowry has now been paid. I'm going to prepare a home for my new bride and I'm coming back for her. But until I return, you guys are responsible for the guest list at the wedding. Don't read too much into that. Just stick with me for a minute. It might be a little bit of a stretch, but I'm going somewhere. Jesus says, I'm getting ready for the wedding, and I'm going to return when the Father says it's time. Until then, you go and invite everyone to the ceremony. And again, this is not the first time Jesus has used this imagery. In Matthew 22, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to tell those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants, and he said, Tell those that have been invited, I prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. And then he said to the servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. And so the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people that they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. You see, Jesus has been preparing the disciples all along for this sacred task. And he warns them, you're going to invite people to come, and a lot of them aren't going to listen. But you invite them anyway. He says, you're going to go back and tell them how great the wedding is going to be. And they're going to ignore you, but you tell them anyway. You're going to go invite people to the wedding feast, and they will mistreat. They will abuse. They might even kill some of you, but you go and you invite them anyway. And if the VIPs don't want to come, then you go to everybody else that you can find, and you invite them. But your job is to tell them. And don't worry, he says, you'll receive the power to complete the task, and the gates of hell will not prevail against you. This is the cultural context of the Great Commission in Acts chapter 1. Jesus, in the founding of the church, is telling his disciples to invite people to be part of the greatest wedding celebration of all times. 
And so if that marks the beginning of the church and the book of Acts tells the story of the growth of the church and we are in that continuing uh, life of the church even now, where then does the history of the church end? And I think we read about that in Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19 says, Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both great and small. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. And then the angel said to me, write this down. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And then he added, these are the true words of God. I want you to catch this. Regardless of the hardship the uncertainty, regardless of your circumstances, we are part of this story still. Your job is to be out inviting people to the wedding supper of the Lamb. So don't give up. I get it. This is rocky soil to cultivate. But be encouraged that out of all the people that have ever walked this planet throughout all of time, our sovereign, reigning, ruling, all-glorious, all-wise king has chosen you at this time to invite people to the wedding supper. It might be easy to feel discouraged or to feel overwhelmed or to feel like the culture is too far gone and it's not going to make a difference, but stay the course. Your task, your calling, it's not insignificant. There is a holiness. There is a sacred beauty to what you've been given to do. Faithfully proclaim the gospel and invite people to the wedding supper of the Lamb. You might feel tired. You might feel discouraged. You might feel like quitting. But know this. Our Jesus is worth it. You know that our king is worthy of the worship of all people. You know that our nation, that all nations can be saved through the power of the gospel. You know that in truth, it's not a sacrifice of our lives to reach the nations because we gave up our lives the moment we died to self and trusted in Christ. And now we are his to use as he pleases. And what did he tell us to do? Y'all go be my witnesses. Go make disciples. But to me, the greatest encouragement in this, that reminder that I need in Revelation, blessed are those that are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And we have been given the sacred task of inviting people. I want you to get this. Are you worried about how people react to your sharing the gospel with them? Just remember, the Bible says they're blessed having been invited. Regardless of their response... It's a blessing that they've been invited. How many times have we said, I've done this. I'm afraid to say something. I don't know how they're going to respond. What if it gets weird? What if they get awkward? What if they get mad? 98% of the stuff we worry about never happens. We just make it up in our mind. Scripture says it's a blessing to them that you even invite them to the wedding supper. I get it here in the Northwest. 
There are times that the fruit of salvation may seem slow and growing, but we can be confident that it's growing. And one day we are going to be gathered around the table at the marriage celebration of our Lord, and we're going to look up and we're going to hear the languages of the nations rejoicing in the banquet hall of heaven. And think about this. Even now, at this very moment, as our rooms are being prepared, the banquet is being made ready. The heavenly arena is already filled with those that have gone on before us. We read about that in that Hall of Fame chapter of faith, Hebrews chapter 11, right? It tells about those that have gone before us that are waiting for uh, for that time to come when Christ returns. Hebrews 11 tells us about Abel. That's there. Having offered a better sacrifice, one the Bible says was offered in faith. He is cheering us on today from eternity saying, don't give up. Abraham is there. A man who was willing to leave the comfort of his home and follow God's command to go to a country that he did not yet know. He's cheering us on, telling us, lay your yes on the altar. Don't pick it back up because victory is assured. Enoch is there, a man known for nothing other in Scripture than that he walked with God. And he calls out to us, walk in the faith that you've been given. Noah, a man that trusted God enough to withstand the ridicule of his neighbors and obey God's command to spend 120 years building a boat on dry land. And he calls out to us today, remain faithful, stay the course. Moses is listed, right? Who led Israel out of slavery in Egypt. He delivered the Ten Commandments. He crossed the Red Sea. And he's calling out to the church today, don't quit, don't give up. Our God is victorious. There's others still. Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, King David, Samuel. The prophets are all listed and all of them are cheering us on, yelling, screaming, don't give up. Keep the faith. The gates of hell don't stand a chance against our God because our king reigns supreme. That's worth losing your voice over, right? So what does that mean for us today? In the meantime, we read in Hebrews chapter 12 that since we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, Let us throw off everything that hinders and throw off the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He scorned its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, considered him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and will not lose heart. That's your job. Make disciples. Don't grow weary. Don't lose heart. Consider what our king has endured to purchase his bride. This is our time to offer everything in the service of our king. This is our time to go out into the darkness and show people what light looks like. This is our time to go into the highways and the byways and invite everyone we can find to come and to join us at the great wedding celebration. And once we're there, on that great and glorious day, at that moment, we will know in full what it means to overcome in power and to overwhelm the gates of hell. As I I close this morning, I simply want to ask you this. Are you going to the wedding supper of the Lamb? 
If you already have your spot at the table, you're commanded to invite others to the celebration. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. This is your job. Invite people to the celebration. But if you don't yet know if you've got a spot at the table, today can be a day of salvation for you. Jesus Christ, in giving his life for you, he has poured out his blood and he has extended that offer to you. And those who receive his life, pledging theirs in return, get Christ. They win. They get redemption. Christ offers his life for you. And when you, by faith, receive that and pledge your life in return, The Bible says we become part of the bride. Here in a moment, I'm going to pray, and then I believe we're going to come and sing another song before we dismiss. If you'd like to know about how you can have a seat at the table, I would love to have that conversation with you. When the service is over, I'll be right over here. I'd love to talk to you about what that might look like. You don't know me, I get it. Turn to any church member in here and let them tell you how you can have a spot at the table. The good news is all who receive the blood of Christ, all who receive that offer of his life can be saved. They will be saved. And today that invitation is there for you. For those that have received Christ, y'all, your job ain't changed. Make disciples. Get to work. Invite people to the wedding supper. It really comes down to that. Let me pray, and then as we sing, uh, once the service is over, I invite you simply respond however it is that God would lead you to respond. Father, I thank you for the great promises of Scripture. I thank you for that promise that in Christ, His church, the gates of hell will not prevail. It's easy to look at the world around us and be discouraged. It's easy for us to look at the world around us and look for a human Savior a political rescuer, to look to others to redeem us. But yet, Lord, we recognize this world is irretrievably broken and outside of your grace and your goodness and outside of your provision of salvation, there is no hope. So let us be a people that go into the brokenness and offer hope. Let us be a people that go out and make disciples, telling about what it is that you have done and how everyone that receives Christ can have a spot at the wedding table. Lord, until the day that Christ returns, I pray we will be about our job, making disciples in our Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Father, for those that might be here this morning that don't yet know you, I pray that your spirit show them their need for a Savior, that your spirit bring them conviction of their sin, and that they will turn and receive the offer of the life of Jesus and pledge theirs in return that they too can know what salvation is. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. In him we find our hope. Amen. Why don't you go ahead and stand and sing.